0: Good morning, welcome back to University Chapel. Good to see you all, very good to see you all. The theme of our University Chapel for this year is room at the table and you are all welcome at God's table. I don't stand behind pulpits very often. If there's one thing that I let people know fairly soon and quickly in a relationship is that I'm the youngest of nine children because it explains a lot about who I am and why I am. And I am the youngest with six brothers above me and two sisters above them. And so I was the, the, the joy and the favored youngest princess that came along after all of these boys. I'm not sure my sisters really agreed with that. <laughs> Um, I came home on my second oldest sister's 12th birthday, and I'm, I'm not sure how she felt about that, um, to be sort of eclipsed by the appearance of this new girl after half a dozen boys had come along. They took good care of me though, my sisters, I'll have to say that. And so the idea of room at the table for me has a very... Um, a very unique perspective of being a ninth child in a family where you had to squeeze to make room at the table. And the way my mom put it was every child, every baby came with her or his own loaf of bread in a way saying that God provides even when we don't know how we are going to. And with that loaf of bread also came room at a table which started out as a small formica and chrome deal that you probably may have recognized from your house or your grandmother's house. And it expanded, but whenever a guest appeared or my parents had friends over, the children generally got shuffled off to other areas, maybe a card table, maybe the breadboard, that sort of thing. It was just a common occurrence. So when my mother at, oh, about 1959 or so, I was not in existence yet, met another woman with a large Catholic family at the parochial school where my brothers and sisters were attending. She found out that they were from Canada and that they had uh, no plans for the upcoming Thanksgiving meal because they were Canadians. And in fact, as a Canadian, she didn't really even know what Thanksgiving was. So my mom said, why don't you come? And so the Kirby family came over with their maybe four or five kids at the time and had a Thanksgiving meal. And Kay Kirby, my second mom, enjoyed it so much. She said, let's do this again next year. And we did it again next year, and next year, and next year, and babies came, and children were married and grandchildren came. And we gathered last Thanksgiving and we had over 60 people directly descended from these two wonderful matriarchs who decided to make room at each other's tables even though their tables were so full. And so Christmas time this year, uh, my family has a lot of activity during December. We have, well, we have the big Thanksgiving festival and uh, we have my mom's birthday. And so Christmas has been deaccentuated in our immediate family because now we're all having kids and we want to meet and we have in-laws and you know all of that. So my brothers and sisters and my mom, sometimes we don't gather for Christmas because we've already had those gatherings. Well, my mom is getting on in age and she was feeling really sad that we might not get together. So my sister texted me at 10.30 at night, mom's really sad, and I texted her back, okay, we can all get together at our house on Saturday after Christmas, and we had a group text for my couple of brothers that are in town, and I got some RCPs, and um, very spontaneous, very low-key, that's kind of the way I roll, Um, not a fancy menu, enchiladas, beans, and rice, Um, believe me, as Californians with nine kids, we ate like that all the time. So it was just kind of like a a Comstock sort of thing to do. And so I'm rolling up tortillas, rolling up enchiladas. My in-laws dropped by because they wanted to see my three grandkids. And uh, I'm rolling up the enchiladas and talking, and and, uh, people are starting to show up, and my in-laws left, and people are showing up. And I was expecting 16 people. And I'm a fairly literal person, and I, I, I plan specifically for specific things like that. I don't know why I am that, that way, but I just am. And, um, and so as people are appearing, there's all of these extra people coming up that I did not expect. And so from the, from the mm, 13 adults I thought I was going to have, plus the three grandchildren, I ended up with 21 or 22 people that showed up, which is about a 30 percent increase over what I was expecting. <laughs> and I was texting Colleen, because she said, how's your, how's your evening going? And I'm like, there's 18 people here now. There's 20 people here now. More people just showed up. <laughs> and I darn my brother who didn't RSVP, and he brought his daughter and his daughter's fiance and my other brother brought his girlfriend's daughter and her father and i mean all kinds of stuff like that and so well her his girlfriend's father who i knew as a child so it was such a blessing to have them so we didn't have even have a table you're sitting on couches at our house you know and uh it worked i just rolled up the rolled up more enchiladas thank god for lots of tortillas thank god for a sister who brought lots of beans and rice and we had plenty of drink and plenty of chips and salsa, and it went well. And when I sat down at the end of the evening, after all of my guests had left, put my feet up, had my last glass of wine, and my, sister, or my, my daughter said to me, "'Mom, you handled that like a boss.'" <laughs> and I was so proud of myself, because it was just like, I'm in the moment, you know? And, and one of the things that you may find, if you ever come to my house, when I've got a crowd and I'm cooking, I'm the boss of the kitchen. And if you don't have anything to do in the kitchen, you need to get out of the kitchen right now, which is hard with an island, because when you have an island, there tends to be snacks on the island and people are crowded around. But I was the boss. And so when I think of the table, when I hear room at the table, when I've been listening to this for the last semester, I think in terms of my table. How can I make room at my table? I'm very, like, possessive of this idea that I have something to offer to someone else. That I am the one who can be either hospitable to people or hostile. I can either make my home or my heart welcoming or I cannot. I can decide who gets to eat and how much, which is what I did at this function, because I cannot let people serve themselves enchiladas when I don't have enough enchiladas for everybody. <laughs> and so the trick is, is you cut the enchiladas in half, and then you serve them three halves. Now, they're only getting one and a half, when maybe you might have planned two or variations of one or three on a theme, depending on the adult who's, who you're serving. And so the problem is, for me, is that, and this is, this is from my perspective, my perspective as a white European stock American, and there's lots of us in here, and really I can only speak from this perspective. And so my apologies to anyone here who is not of that stock or of that culture or that heritage, because I can only speak from my perspective And so I'm gonna speak from my perspective, and I want to welcome all of us to think through what I'm about to say from your perspective, from your culture, from your worldview. So I think it's a natural tendency for those of us in the West who grew up with this European heritage to think of the table as being ours. It's ours, and the reason we think this is really deeply embedded in our historical consciousness. Europe was largely influenced by the Christian idea of those who are in and those who are out, of those who sit at the communion table and those who don't sit at the communion table because they are either a part of the church or not part of the church. Whether that's good or bad is really neither here or there. It's just a fact of our cultural sensibilities. My, per, my personal perspective is, it's okay for the communion table to be closed to those who do not confess a belief, just as there's many other tables in the world, in many cultures that are close to me. And it would be, it would, it would be a profanity for me to participate in some of the rituals that other cultures may participate in because it's not my ritual, it's not my heritage, it's not my culture. And so, in recognizing that Europe was largely influenced by this idea of in and out, we carry that into our own um, understanding of the world and how we approach people. In the same way, we have a heritage of colonialism, where Europeans went out and conquered civilizations and politically took over areas. And along with that colonialization were missionary movements, where missionaries went out to bring the gospel to different people, which is a good thing from a Christian perspective. But the difficulty is, is they did not acknowledge the beauty of the cultures that they were going to. They didn't acknowledge the beauty of the rituals, the beauty of the people. They sought to expunge all of those things and replace it with a Western European style of religion. We also, as Americans, have this idea of manifest destiny. And although historians will agree that that idea was not really embraced by all Americans, the idea was there, was that we, as the United States, we're, we're destined to cross the West and to bring the light of the East into the darkness of the West, and to, um, to make the West almost like the New Promised Land. And while we may not agree, we, we may agree that that was not a good idea. Don't we still do that same thing as Americans today, where we are sending out our ideals of capitalism and democracy into this world that we live in? whether they want it or not. We think that that's important. We think that that is the right way to be as humans in the world. And so we export this Americanism into the world. Because that's our table that we have to offer. I'm not even anywhere. Well, I'm near my notes, but I kind of have to see where I am. Okay, so these influences have developed a worldview inside of us that is prone to feelings of superiority. And we don't necessarily recognize why we think the way we think. And so when we're accosted with accusations of say white privilege or prejudice, we say, no, that's not, no, no, that's not me. And yet we don't even know that in our interior we do bear those things in our DNA. We have a cultural DNA that um, I would suggest needs some uh, re-engineering, all right? We need to re-engineer our cultural DNA. So once we recognize this, then how do we look at the table? And the table's been discussed a lot over the last several months. One of the One of the beautiful ways that it was expressed was the idea of the table of God's love and that our understanding of God's love may only fit the spot where a cup would sit, but God's love is expansive. It's infinite, really. And we cannot uh, hold to our own understanding of what God's love is because it's much larger than we can even begin to comprehend. I've been thinking a lot about the Good Samaritan the Good Samaritan, that story is really, it's, it's so commonly known in our culture, even with people who don't know where it came from, uh, to the point that we have Good Samaritan laws. And so if you help somebody who's been injured in a car accident or something, and uh, you do your best to help them, but maybe you don't help them, maybe even hurt them, you are protected from lawsuit because of these Good Samaritan laws. So as we know, the Good Samaritan focuses on a poor Jew who had been beaten and robbed and left for dead on the road outside of Jerusalem, which was a very terrible road to travel on. And a a couple of Jewish men walked by, a priest walked by and looked, a Levite walked by and looked, and they both kept walking. And so a Samaritan came by, the Samaritan being the historical enemy of the Jews. They held a a common heritage. They were both groups that were children of Abraham, but there was, uh, from the Jewish point of view, the Samaritans were polluted, they were defiled. And so this Samaritan comes along and he picks up this Jewish man and he dresses the man's wounds so he cleans him, he dresses them, he pours wine on them, he takes the man to an inn and leaves him there with instructions to be taken care of. And I've been thinking about that story because whenever that story is preached, there's one person who we generally don't talk too much about, and that's the victim of this robbery, the Jew who's been cared for by a Samaritan. What do you think went through that Jew's mind when he realized he was being cared for by his enemy? What do you think that Jew was thinking of when he was settled into another Samaritan's home? Because likely, I'm reading, I'm reading around the text, but they really didn't have inns back then, like a hotel. There were extra rooms, spare rooms. So when Jesus and Mary, for example, couldn't find room in the inn, there wasn't room in the spare room for them, to, so they got you know, shuffled off with the animals somewhere. And so this Samaritan would likely not house this Jew within a Jewish house because he wouldn't be welcome. The Samaritan wouldn't be welcome there. So here's this Jew who's receiving the benefit of the love of this Samaritan. He's sitting at the table of this Samaritan's heart. And that's where I want to address the table when we talk about room for the table. I want to talk about the table of our hearts, that that is where the connection is, that that is where we can learn to love one another. And I want to tie the story of this Good Samaritan into us because we don't think this way, that we are wounded in our souls. And when I say we, I mean white, European, Americans. What I'm not saying is that we are victims of this wounding. What I'm saying is that our souls are damaged, that our souls bear an inaccurate picture of humanity, and an inaccurate picture of how we are to interact with one another. It's a wound that needs to be healed. And I have a suggestion for healing those wounds. And from my provocative statement, it's by sitting at the table of another, because others have tables also. Others have plenty to offer. Others can help us to learn how to love them in ways we would never learn how to love them if we just observed them from afar. We recognize there's differences between various cultures and various people, and those differences are good. We don't all want to become this thick, homogenous blend of people that have no differences. There's great diversity, and we can share in that diversity, and we can learn to have unity in diversity. The difference between people manifests in different ways. It manifests in our language, it manifests in our manners of speech, and these are consequences of the different ways we think. People from different cultures, from different civilizations think differently, even about things like what is truth? What does it mean to be a human being? And so when we recognize this, we find unity. And the only way that we can attend to the school, as simple as it sounds, is to sit down at the table of another. It's a sit down. I was able to to go to a candlelight vigil for the San Bernardino victims that was hosted by uh, uh, the Association of Muslim Students at Simi Valley High School. And the local Muslims were there, and there was a rabbi and a Catholic deacon, and some other folks. And I was able to just sit and listen and learn about how a Muslim perceives the way we perceive them in this world, in this country. And it was very impactful for me. It was, it, it, it was, um, it was different for me, because I like to talk and I like to fit in. And you know your reflection? that you spoke um, was very evocative to me of, of my childhood where I fit in with my family but I really didn't fit in very many other places and how deeply we want to fit in and how deeply we need to fit in. And so when we attend to this goal of learning from one another through talking to one another, through language, through communication, through asking clarifying questions, but not making statements of fact to one another. Where we use this medium of understanding and agreement, which is what language is. We're consciously creating knowledge and understanding the other. And when we sit at the table of the other to listen, we learn and we learn to love. And so my siren call to you, is to go out and love. Go out and love one another. This is the love that is patient, that is kind, that doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It's born of real communication between the soul of one human being and the soul of another human being. It's where we sit and sup at the table of our hearts. This soul talk is hope for our world where encounters with others manifest in hospitality hospitality over hostility, in curiosity over indifference, and where hate is swallowed up by love. Thank you for listening.